0: Uh, as Richard has said, we are introducing and starting a new series today. But, but right up front, let me uh, warn you that some of this may be reasonably offensive. Uh, part, not just because I've been to Rome, part, uh, part of what I plan to share, a core aspect, is, is probably going to ruffle a few feathers, uh, or at least I think it will, or maybe I, I even hope it does. Uh, but before we get offensive, or I get offensive, let me ask you a question. Why are questions so important in teaching or in learning? We have bit of congregational participation. Why are questions so important in, in teaching or in learning? Give me a bit of feedback. Makes you think. Thank you. I think it was Dorothea. Thank you, Dorothea. Sorry? Checks what you know. Anything else? Why are questions so important? Disciples ask Jesus questions, yep. If you don't ask questions, you won't find answers. If you don't ask questions, you won't find answers. Brilliant. Questions take people on a journey of discovery. One of the, the really interesting uh, things about Jesus is the way that he communicated and taught using questions, I've always known that Jesus used a lot of questions, but only recently have I realized just how much he used questions to engage with people and to take them on a journey of discovery. I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but as you read the Gospels, you find out that Jesus actually asks 307 different questions. In addition, he is asked, 183 questions. Those are questions that are addressed directly to him, and he answers less than 10 of them. (laughs) It's interesting. Some would say he only answers three. Jesus is not so much the answer man as he is the great questioner. And so for the next number of weeks, although not 307... Although, why not? That's like six years of sermon material. <laughs> but what we're going to do is we're going to explore some of the questions that Jesus asked. And we're going to consider, well, why are why questions? Why were his questions so important? But we're going to restrict ourselves to the questions that he asked in Matthew's Gospel. I've called this series, Treasure the Questions, which is actually the title of a song by an artist called Martin Joseph. I remember hearing him sing this song at Spring Harvest about 20 plus years ago. But for me, it's the title that really intrigues me, Treasure the Questions, because I want that to capture our experience as we confront and as we wrestle with some of the questions that Jesus asks of us, that we would actually value his questions, that we would see them, that we would treat them as incredibly precious. But before we turn to today's, First question, let let me say a little bit more by way of introduction. I do think it's fascinating to discover that right from the word go, right from the start of his life, Jesus was asking questions. Another bit of congregational participation. What is the first incident we read about in the life of Jesus post his infant stage and after he is able to talk? What is the first incident we read about? Exactly, when he goes to the temple as, how old was he? 12, brilliant. Jesus as a 12-year-old going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his family, and we know that his family lose him, and they lose him for a number of days, and they find him in the temple, and what is he doing? He's asking questions. Here's what Luke tells us. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Questions. And what's also intriguing is that whenever his parents, Mary and Joseph, challenge him, how does Jesus respond? He responds with questions. Two more of them. Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And this pattern of Jesus continued throughout his entire life, even at the point of his death. Jesus is asking a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even post-resurrection, what are you looking for? Why are you crying? Questions really do seem to have played a major role in the way Jesus connected with people. But why? Why? Well, partly because questions are an invitation for further reflection. They do, as I've said, send us on a journey. They encourage us, as Dorothea said, to think to think further, to think deeper. As someone has said, thinking is driven by questions, as opposed to answers. Answers often close down conversations, whereas questions open them up. Linguists tell us that questions have many different functions. Here are five of them. Questions elicit information. Questions inspire people to discover something new. Questions persuade. Questions stimulate thought. Questions forge intimacy. They have this ability to build closeness. Because whenever you meet someone or meet with someone and they ask you questions, they demonstrate, you know something, this person's interested in me. This person wants to find out more about me. This person Cares. Questions fuel dialogue and enable us to get to know each other that little bit better. And as ever, it seems Jesus was ahead of the game. He recognized the power and potential of asking questions, and therefore he used them time and time again as one of his favorite modes of communication, as one of his favorite ways for teaching. Now, as we take a closer look, you discover that, that Jesus used different kinds of questions. So, some of them were very straightforward questions. Like the one he asked the two friends walking towards a mess, where he came up to them and he said, What are you talking about as you walk along? It was a very straightforward question, it was a very direct question. It demanded a direct answer, and they gave it to him. And once they had given him the answer, it opened up a whole further conversation, which ultimately led to revelation. But other questions that Jesus asked were rhetorical. They were meant to be left hanging in the air, unanswered in the moment. Like the one, by the way, next Sunday morning, John Alderdice is actually speaking, who's the director of training at Edge Hill Methodist College, and next Sunday night, Tim Wark, is speaking, so you don't have to listen to me again next week. But the question that John Alderdice next Sunday morning is going to look at with us is this one. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single R to your life? And that question doesn't get answered. That question is just left hanging. And the reason is that we all know the answer, even though we don't. Even though we don't get it, we can't get our heads around it because so many of us worry. And yet Jesus comes along and says, listen, can, I, can any of you, by worrying, add a single moment to your life? There's so another kind of question that Jesus asks. There's the straightforward kind, the rhetorical kind, there's also the disarming kind. Those questions that have the capacity to unnerve and unsettle us, which is exactly the point. Because you see, Jesus, by asking those kind of questions, wants to evoke new understanding, new perspectives. He uses questions to get under our skin at times and to change us, to transform us, to take us outside of our comfort zones, because questions have the ability to do that. They push us. They provoke us. Which brings us to our first question, or the first one we're going to look at in this series. If you do have a Bible, can you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, this should be one in the pew. It's page 970. Going to start at verse 43. We're breaking in uh, to what is, as Richard said earlier, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Part of this radical teaching of Jesus that we have looked at before that considers what does it actually mean to be a Jesus follower? What does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom? And this is where I get offensive. Or rather, and this is why it's okay to do this, this is where Jesus gets offensive. Because no teaching of Jesus is perceived or regarded as more offensive than this teaching. John Stott, the late John Stott, described this little section that we are about to read as the most admired and the most resented. Because you see, this shakes us to the core. This messes with our heads. This teaching takes us in directions we'd rather not go. It takes us to a place we'd rather not go. A place where we are commanded To love our enemies. I I, I did have a different visual. But when I showed it to Glenn, she wouldn't let me show it. That's what 25 years of marriage does. (laughs) No, that's not true. She she didn't. But I did have a different visual. But I decided not to use it because I thought it might be just a bit too provocative and a bit too offensive. But this one here, with nice colours. But what does it say? Love, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. You see, the place where this takes us is the place of inclusive love. Inclusive love that sounds great in theory, but seems impossible in practice. And what is the question that Jesus asks us or rather, what are the four questions as he picks up and this issue? Well, let's stand together and hear them afresh this morning. Let's stand for the public reading of God's word. Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of of your father in heaven he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous here's the question if you love those who love you what reward will you get are not even the tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your own people what are you doing more than others Do not pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Grab a seat. I don't know about you, but but whenever I hear that teaching, whenever I I listen to it, and then I attempt to answer those kind of questions, I I immediately do a few things. The first thing I do is I, I run for cover. I just avoid the challenge. I blank it out, I never go there. Even though I, I, I deeply admire the concept. But my other tendency is to dilute the teaching. And start thinking about, well, Jesus didn't mean. Or I start thinking about who Jesus didn't mean. because. Clearly, Jesus didn't mean that we are to love ISIS. C- clearly, Jesus didn't mean we are to love the hard activist campaigner for certain rights, and you fill in the blanks who spits venom in our direction. C- clearly, that's not who Jesus meant we're to love. Or what about the person who is intent on wrecking our lives? The person who makes your life miserable surely Jesus didn't mean us to to, to love those people. But the minute I go there, and I have to be honest, it's a familiar place to go for me. But the minute I go there is surely the minute I become like the Pharisees who consistently wanted to know the exceptions, who were always searching for the loopholes, who were constantly keen to know what did they not have to do in order to obey this principle? I'm not sure how many of you remember this quote from John Alexander that I, that I shared back in 2008. It's before I actually came here. But this captures my tendency. This, is, this captures what I tend to do to kind of tone down the teaching of Jesus. Christians spend a lot of time and energy explaining why Jesus couldn't have meant what he said. This is understandable. Jesus was an extremist. We are all moderates. What's worse, he was an extremist in his whole life, not just in narrowly narrowly spiritual areas, but in everything. So we have to find ways to dilute his teachings. And I do. I rationalize it. I look, for the, I look for the gaps. And I'm aware that this is hard and it is uncomfortable and it is maybe offensive to some people. And I'm also convinced that we need to be very careful about what we say and how we say it to those people who are sitting staring at some incredibly evil and ugly enemies. And there may be some people here. And you have people in mind And you find it really hard to hear this. I'm sure we've all come across the saying in the quote, to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, to return good for evil is divine. To return good for evil. Surely that's supernatural. And we do need God's help, there's no doubt about it. But we also need to embrace this teaching. We need to treasure the questions that Jesus asks us as he gives this teaching. If we're going to follow Jesus with integrity, if we are going to be people who claim to live in God, because those who claim to live in God, according to God's word, must walk as Jesus walked. And so let me take us through these verses in just a little more detail, because what we're really confronting this morning is a question of distinctiveness, a question that gets us to consider what is it that actually makes Christians distinctive? What is it that distinguishes them? What is it that sets Christians apart? At the end of the day, are we any different? Are we? As Jesus starts this little section, he, he begins it in familiar fashion. Look at verse 43. He begins it with a reference to what people already knew to what people had already heard about this issue and about their attitude and about their behavior, although on this occasion, we've got to admit a slight difficulty. Jesus starts with a quotation that is not entirely scriptural. (laughs) All the previous ones in this Sermon on the Mount were like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, or you shall not commit adultery. Those were all based on and quoted from Scripture. Scripture. But not this one. Yes, the love your neighbor part, that was scriptural. But see this next part where Jesus then said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, actually that isn't anywhere in the Bible. But even saying that, it's clearly a common idea. It was an accepted position at that time. It made sense. And and when Jesus said it, nobody would have been surprised at hearing Jesus say it because that was the normal, that was the natural mindset. Yeah, you loved your neighbor, but you hated your enemy. But what they would have been completely shocked by was the demanding ethic that Jesus now replaces it with. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those of you. That, that's offensive, Jesus. That is truly inclusive love. That is distinctly different. And let me break this down and start with that word love. And, and we know this. It's, it's that agape love that's being asked for here. It's that God-like, unconditional love that, humanly speaking, does jar it does disrupt the norm. It's a love that chooses to do good to others irrespectively. It's a love of the will, if you like. It's more than an emotion, although emotion is involved. I think we've got to be careful on this. When we say God loves us, sometimes we, we, we don't realise. Do we th- not? Do we not believe that God actually? feels love towards us as well. Yes, his love is agape love, but sometimes we separate the two and think agape love, that's a love of the will, doesn't involve the emotions. Do we not think God actually feels love towards us? To us. God looks at our hearts. So emotions are involved in this, but it's more than that. It's this God-like unconditional love that chooses to do good to another. It's more than an emotion. It involves our emotions, but it's more than an emotion. This is act of love. This is costly love. This is sacrificial love. This is this kind of love. This is a love that chooses to react and respond alternatively, surprisingly, counterculturally. And why? Because like. God's, this love is genuinely inclusive. And so Jesus goes on to say, Do you know something? God makes the sun to rise on evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just. And the unjust God, according to Jesus, pours out his love and blessing on all. That's our benchmark. That's the example we are to try to follow. That's the kind. That's the level. That's the quality of love we are to demonstrate. Truly inclusive. And just in case anyone is is looking to get out clause, because at the end of the day, God is God and we are not. And there's no way we or anybody else could ever hope to get anywhere near this sort of love. Just look again at verse 48 where Jesus says these astounding words. Be perfect. Therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. Surely that's impossible. Surely that's language that simply frustrates and allows us to file this away under nice idea, but totally inconceivable. But no, Jesus is not frustrating his hearers with an unachievable ideal. He's challenging them to grow in obedience to God's will, to become more like God. As one writer has said, while sinless perfection is impossible, godlessness in its biblical concept is attainable. We've been given all we need, according to Scripture, to live a godly life. Do you believe that? You've been given all you need. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given it all to live a godly life. So for be perfect. Sure, Heavenly Father's perfect. Inclusive love. Agape love towards all, neighbor and enemy alike is the calling of true disciples, true kingdom dwellers. How will you and I respond to our enemies? But what about that word enemy? Who is Jesus referring to? And this is where it gets difficult. Was it just kind of national political clan enemies? Was it just organizations, hostile forces that Jesus was thinking of? Well... No, not exclusively. They can be those, but an enemy can also be an individual opponent. A person who opposes us, an adversary who's got it in for us, someone who's against us, someone who persecutes us. And yet again, the high calling of Jesus is this. Love them. Love them. And pray for them. Because that way, if you look at verse 45, that way proves you're the real deal. That way proves you're the real deal. That we are true children of God, that we are, to quote a phrase, chips off the old block. Loving enemies does not make anyone a Christian. But when we love our enemies, we prove ourselves to be in God's family. I say that again. Loving enemies does not make anyone a Christian. But when we love our enemies, we prove ourselves to be in God's family. God deals with friends and enemies alike, and that's what we are called to do. And as I've said, this love is an active thing, and praying for our enemies and for those who persecute us is one of the most active things we can do. Sometimes we hear the teaching of Jesus like this to love our enemies, and if we're honest, we're not really sure what that looks like. And yes, we've we've talked about agape love and all of that, and it all sounds great, but what does it actually look like? Well, let me suggest that if nothing else, although this is possibly everything else, if nothing else, we should make it a priority to pray for them. Jesus did it. Even as he hung on the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen did it as he was being stoned to death. Lord, don't hold this sin against my killers. Praying For our enemies is quite possibly the most loving thing we can do and choose to do. So let me encourage us to actively make time today or this week to pray for our opponents, to pray for our accusers, to pray for our persecutors, to pray for our enemies. As one writer puts it, in prayer we give God our inner violence and resentments, our hurts and our anger, our pain and our wounds, our bitterness and our vengeance, because those are all within us, aren't they? Towards our enemies. But in prayer we give those. And we grant mercy and forgiveness towards those who have hurt us. And we move from anger and vengeance and violence to compassion and mercy and non-violence. And as Jesus continues to teach on this subject, he then injects this question and he uses this favorite method of communication of his or one of his favorite methods of communication. He asks this searching. He asks this uncomfortable question right at this moment when he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And again, we kind of all know the answer, don't we? If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? And you see, the point of these questions is this. And I'm finished. But the point of these questions is this. If you and I, if Christians don't love their enemies, then they're not distinctive. They're no different from tax collectors and pagans. They may talk a good game, they might even claim to be different. But you see, if we don't live this, see if we don't seek this, see if we don't love our enemies, then we're no different from anyone else. And if that offends us, then maybe we haven't quite got this. I find myself, and I'm just being honest with you, I find myself caught between being deeply offended and profoundly challenged by this teaching and by these questions. But if I'm going to be a genuine, authentic disciple of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, then I need to... Treasure these questions. Let's pray. Lord, the hardest thing you've asked of us was to love our enemies. We knew how we'd like to love them, we'd love our enemies to be far away from us, we'd love them not to compromise our security. We'd love them not to scare us or to change the way we live. We'd love them to be lovable. God of all mercy, who loved us while we were your enemies, who saved us through your immeasurable grace, who gave us a gift that we did not deserve, let us imitate you by loving those who are our enemies. Teach us. Help us to wish them the best of the life you intend each human to have and then pray and act so that those wishes come true. Teach us hope so we know that your blessing and your impossible dreams can become a reality. Teach us faith so we know that only the strength to stop hating will halt the cycles of violence and revenge. And teach us forgiveness. Which we know is so hard. When our community looks at this congregation. When this community hears our words and sees our deeds. Help them to know that you, the God of love, live among us. And that they can come to us to learn about Christian love for enemies. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.